the detailed doctor, the physician, Luke, put it this way, Luke 5.16, when the crowds, as often they would do, pressed in on him, it tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Turn the page, Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, it says that Jesus went up to a mountainside and spent the whole night praying. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18 Uh, It says he retreated to the places of privacy. The literal translation there is to the lonely places. Luke, flip the page, Luke 9, 28. He took Peter, James, and John, his boys, and they went up to the mountain. And there it says they prayed together. Flip the page, Luke chapter 11. All the disciples saw Jesus doing what? They saw him praying and they said to him, teach us to pray. Now think about that. They were Jewish men in a variety of ages. They were, prior to that, Jewish boys. They had probably grown up in a synagogue. They had heard prayers. They had recited prayers, had prayers quoted to them and read to them. They knew a lot of prayers. But they saw Jesus pray and they said, we ain't doing it right. Teach us, teach us to pray. Something different about how he prayed. Jesus prayed. Jesus invites us to pray. In the invitation, Jesus says this. John, in his gospel, John 14 and verse 15, Jesus said, ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. Flip the page, John 15 and verse 6. It says, you can ask the Father. You're called to bear fruit, uh, fruit that is much, fruit that will remain. And you can ask the Father anything in my name and it will be given to you. Flip the page, John 16 and verse 24. Ask and it will be given to you. Your joy will be complete. It seems that Jesus wanted us to have a big view of seeking God. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 is where we are in this sermon series. We're rooted in this passage. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask and what? It will be given to you. Here we go again, Jesus Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be open to them. Jesus wants us to ask. Now we've got to be careful, right? For not to conceive, wrongly conceive of that genie in a bottle kind of God view, right? Ask anything. And I grew up sort of in a faith tradition. Uh, They meant well. But there was sort of this uh, prevailing thought that if we ask in Jesus' name, then, well, you know, that was just sort of like this little um, addendum that you put on the end of a prayer, kind of like open sesame or something. So you, you put that lo- those couple of words on and that tacks on the magic wand. And so God has got to give you what you asked for because, I mean, you prayed in Jesus' name. Here in modern readers and understanders and seekers, well, we lose something in the translation. In first century Palestine, a person's name was associated with their nature. That was the intention of every parent at the time. And so what Jesus is saying, and this helps bring some stuff into focus here, moving away from the genie in a bottle view of God, but the whole idea of praying in Jesus' name is not an add-on, not an addendum, not a magic wand, an open sesame thing. It is a let us pray according to God's nature. And when we do, that changes everything. Jesus prayed, and Jesus invites you to pray to be a person who asks and seeks and knocks, and then to expect that he's going to do something. But let's be honest, you came out in the rain today, prayer is boring, especially if you have Netflix. It's no secret that we live in an age of unparalleled digital 
distraction. There are multinational companies that they spend billions of dollars in marketing and research development. It's called the attention economy. And if you know about this, and in the attention economy, the goal is all this money spent, really smart, creative people with one goal in mind. You know what it is? It's to distract you and to addict you. You guys remember life? Any of you remember life before 2007? Uh, some of you don't really. But before 2007, before the iPhone became what it is, anybody remember this thing called, wait for it, anybody remember this thing called boredom? Anybody remember that? Like you would stand in line or you were stuck somewhere and you just had time to think. Now, we've always had print. Everybody in here has always had print. There's always been something to look at, but it's not as enticing and as alluring, right, as the digital devices that we now have. And so when you waited in line, there were times when you just, check this out, you just like thought. <laughs> like you could just like, you could let your mind wander. And nobody in that moment, right, was seeking to distract you or addict you like they are now. And in boredom, you had an opportunity. I, I miss those days of boredom. I thought thoughts. I, I, I could be contemplative. And those moments of waiting in that boredom, they could be unwasted moments. In fact, they could be portals into prayer, portals into thinking lofty and great noble thoughts about God and asking Him to do something in me. Remember those days. Prayer can be boring with Netflix and such. Prayer can be difficult when we have money. Everybody's got money. If you're an American, you've got more than most parts of the world. You know, money can do what prayer can do. In many ways, it just does it easier and faster. It's much more efficient. Boredom, money, the distractions. And there is something in us a big blocker to prayer. It's the inner cynic in you. You've got that, you know. I've got it. The inner cynic is what my, uh, the late mentor in my life, Bill Bright, founder and president of Campus Crusade, first coined the phrase, the practical atheist. You've heard of this. Maybe you've heard me teach on this. A practical atheist is someone who, if they were interviewed in a in a USA Today CNN poll or a Gallup poll or a man on the street, they would say, I'm not an atheist, I believe in God. But this is the person who says they believe in God, but they live really as if he doesn't exist. A practical atheist, pragmatic agnostic, that inner cynic in you, why pray? Does it, does it really matter? This morning, let me ask you, what's the greatest motivator to pray? In two words, I want to tell you, the greatest motivator to prayer is answered prayer. Have you tasted it? Have you, have you touched it? Have you seen it? I told the 930 this, I tell you now, I stand in front of you today saying, I've experienced answered prayer and it is motivating when you ask, seek and knock and see something. When you find and receive and see something open to you, man, it motivates now, let me ask you, audience participation welcomed, what's the greatest demotivator for you to pray? Two words, unanswered prayer. The great theologian Garth Brooks sang about it years ago. 
You know this, right? You know, you know I was going there. He sings. I remember when I first heard these words on country radio, I, I, I thought, I got to pull over because I want to hear what he's got to say. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into an old high school flame. You know, that's, if it's in a country song, it's going to be good. And it's a true story in his life. Garth Brooks, he goes to a game with his wife and he sees that girl that he thought was so beautiful back in the day, the girl that he crushed on, the girl that he craved for, the girl that he would hoist up a prayer or two that God would one day make her his wife. And he looked at her and he thought, what was I thinking back then? And he whispered under his breath, thank God. And you know the, the chorus of that song talks about sometimes God's greatest gifts are often what? Unanswered prayers. True story. I went back a few years ago to a high school reunion and I saw a girl, that girl, and she saw me. And I saw her whisper under her breath as she looked at me. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. And you know you could be somebody's unanswered prayer today. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. I want, to, I want you to teach this. I bet a lot of you don't know it, not trying to sound superior, but I, you know, I studied this week for the sermon. You didn't. But listen, do you know this? In the Bible, in the Bible, there are more examples of unanswered prayer than answered prayer. Now that just takes the genie in the bottle and just shatters it, doesn't it? There are more examples of unanswered prayer than answered prayer. Peter, a guy a little bit like me who talked a lot, was with Jesus and some of the guys again on a mountain and they were talking about Moses and Elijah and Jesus himself and Peter, it says, Peter didn't know what to say. Let's pause there for a second. You ever in a situation where you don't know what to say? Do you know there's an option there for you? If you don't know what to say, there is one option. You could not say something, all right? Somebody needs to hear that this morning besides me, but you could like, like not, if you don't know, you could just not say something. But Peter didn't have that in his nature, so he said something. He gives Jesus a request, and Jesus says no. In Matthew 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee approached Jesus. We talked about this in in our previous series in Philippians when we looked at Roman civilization and the culture there and the the cursus honorum, the the race for honor, how they were seeking to climb the ladder of status. And this mother comes to Jesus and says, Grant, that my boys, one will sit on your left and one on your right. And Jesus asks a question about the cup. Can you drink the cup? They say, we we can. And, And then he says, but this I cannot grant to you. My father cannot grant this to you unanswered prayer Jesus told his followers his disciples let's go to the other side by the way that's what the gospel does let's go to the other side I'm not comfortable on that side the people aren't like us there's a wall of enmity and hostility we're different they're different from us Jesus says to the church now as he did then let's go to the other side and the other side here in Luke 9 it was Samaria it was the Samaritans. And one of the disciples, guess who, said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And I'm really glad Jesus did not answer that prayer. Four people in the Bible, Moses, Jeremiah, Elijah, and Jonah, all got so discouraged, yea, depressed. They got to a point, it was so bleak, that they asked God, they prayed, that God would take their lives. And in each case, God said, no, 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 no. And don't you know that for them, when the dark mood had lifted from them, they were so glad that God did not answer their prayer. 
for some in our day. Some ask for the right person. And they haven't found the right person. For some, they ask for the depression to be lifted, and it has not lifted. Some have been wronged and betrayed and hurt, cheated at work, and they've asked for justice to prevail, but justice does not prevail. What do you do with the ache and deeper still, sometimes the agony of unanswered prayer? What I want to do this morning is to engage head and heart, hopefully, and I want to share some stuff with you this morning that is not comprehensive. In fact, it'll stir up some stuff and that is by design, okay? It's going to stir up some stuff that'll make you maybe want to ask further questions of me or someone. But I want to share with you in three words what I believe are some really um, biblical reasons for unanswered prayer, okay? So here are the three words I want to put in front of you this morning. Uh, They all start with the word, with the letter W. The world will and war. Some are going to be listening online. World, will, W-I-L-L, and war. So this word first, the word world. We live in a world. And I want to put two words up with that, a few actually, but first the words common sense and contradiction. Okay, the words common sense and contradiction. You ever been driving late at night and you're looking, you look at the gas needle and you're really, really low. Like you have almost no fuel and you pray a prayer. Now, what kind of prayer do you pray then? And what do you really expect God to do? All right, talk to him. Anybody that has that ever happened? Maybe it's for the person you're sitting next to late at night and we got one over here. Okay. I see Randy back there. His wife's pointing at him. But what do you pray? What did Randy pray? What, what would you pray? Okay. What do you pray in that situation? God, Lord, I pray that you put a gas station just ahead of us. Is that, does God do that? Now, we know he can, all right? I want you to know that theologically, that's where we stand at Fondren Church. I'm the senior pastor, and we, we have a theological position. Our doctrine states that God can do anything, but is he going to do that? I, I recommend C.S. Lewis and his book on prayer to talk about the world in which we live and what God chooses based on his character to alter and not alter. But look, when it comes to common sense, God doesn't answer some of our prayers because they're just plain stupid. Right? You remember what I said last week where some of you here, we sit down in front of a meal filled with butter and fat and lard and grease and sugar and cholesterol, and we pray, Lord, bless this food to what? To the nourishment of our body, good southern people. But what really is true is God's going to bless it to the hardening of your arteries because that's a stupid prayer. And we have some little kids in the room today. Look, don't use stupid very much this week, okay? The preacher's just kind of trying to be funny. There are also not just... Not just common sense reasons that God's not going to answer some of those prayers, but there's, there's contradictions. Now think with me. The latest polling numbers indicate that there's some 7 billion plus people in the world. And of the 7 billion, many, most, believe in prayer to some extent. So it stands to reason that at any given time, a whole bunch of people are praying. Okay? A whole bunch of people. Two of you circle the parking lot. You, both people love Jesus, both attend Fondren Church, but there's only one parking space. Two people pray for that space. There's a contradiction there. A bride prays for sun on her wedding day, but nearby a farmer prays for rain during a drought. 
an Israeli mother far away prays that her kids can go to school without any fear of a suicide bomber, while a pa- Palestinian mother prays for the Israeli against the Israeli occupation in the West Bank. Does God show favorites? If you got the parking space, you know the answer to that, right? Does God play favorites? Look, some of our prayers, look, some of our prayers are contradictory. And you're not the one managing the universe. Understanding and expectations. Paul to the, to the church in Rome. He said that we live in this world, that's what we're talking about, the world that we live in and our prayers. We live in a world, a literal world, a third rock from the sun, that he says in Romans 8, I love Romans 8. If you know me, you know I love Romans 8. And it says here that we have creation that is subject to frustration, that it cannot escape the bondage to decay. There is death, there's disease, heartache, and sickness and decay. And that's the world in which we live. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Peter would say, an early follower in the midst of a lot of pain, he would say, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeals that have come upon you. What we lack in the American church, middle class America for sure, is a proper doctrine, an accurate, correct theology of suffering. When you get sick, when you lose a job, when your car breaks down, when that relationship that means so much to you goes south, look, that's the world in which we live. But time and time again as we pray, time and time again, we pray not fully understanding God's grace that can be sufficient in those situations. And so we lack an understanding of who God is. We have false expectations about all the things that he wants to do in our lives. And scripture puts it right in front of you. That is the world that you live in. And it talks about not just the creation. It talks about the created beings. That's me and you. And it says in Romans 8, I love Romans 8. And it says there in Romans 8 that we as creatures, we groan. Okay, we outwardly groan and we inwardly hope and expect because of the world that we're living in. Isn't it true? Have you groaned this week? Have you seen the news? We watched this week uh, innocently just talking as husband and wife and the TV was on in the background, a semi-distraction. And we saw this Colorado man being interviewed with his missing wife, pregnant wife and two kids. And I looked at her and said, he did it. And he did it. And I just, I groaned at this world that we live in. Man, it's hard. It hurts. We hope for the better world, for something that's next. For some of you, as you wrestle with prayer, specifically with the, the ache and the agony of unanswered prayer, can I tell you, can I remind you, it's so important to have a good understanding of God, an understanding of the place in which you live and the potential role of suffering in this life. Next up, beyond world, is the word will. You remember, uh, don't look at the screen right now, it's going to be hard to do, just look at me. Not there. But we looked last week, y'all looking? We looked last week at the Lord's Prayer. 
And part of the Lord's Prayer, we said it in our small group Wednesday night, and they nailed it. Everybody got it right, except I said debts and debtors, and they said trespasses and trespassers. But anyway, everybody got it right. But remember the part where Jesus said, your kingdom come, say it with me, your kingdom come. That's it. Say that part again. Y'all are lacking a leader, aren't you? Just poor leadership on my part. Your kingdom come. Implied there, don't miss this, implied there, Jesus is saying heaven is where God's will is done all the time. But earth is where God's will is done some of the time. And so God has a will, but who else has a will? Heaven, heaven, his will all the time. Earth, his will some of the time. Who has a will? Let me show you. God's will, which is always good and perfect and pleasant. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. But humans have a will. Do you have a will? Anybody parent a child? Anybody parent a strong-willed child? Right? They're awfully cute. Some of them are down the hall wreaking havoc, right? But they have a will. And you have a will. And the bigger you are, the more you want to use your body to impose your will. We have a will. And sometimes human will has its way in this world. Spiritual beings have a will. We'll talk about this in a minute. But I believe this. I believe this. You know, most people around the world, there's an increasing number of people who do believe in angels and demons. And there is an unseen force. And they have a will. Also, there's nature's will. I've been reading a lot of smart men and women who are reconciling faith with science, creation, what God did, what He's doing, the world that He's sustaining. But nature has a will. This is gravity. Uh, No one's going to argue against that. Some of you have been hurt because of gravity. There's gravity. There's E equals MC squared. There's El Nino and the climate and weather patterns, right? There's the jet stream that rolls in and brings rain on a Sunday morning, even though the preacher prays against it. Nature has a will. And undergirding this is something that smart people uh, through the centuries have debated, argued, and thought about, including me. And that is free will. Free will points us to love. Without freedom, you don't have love. What's the, I, bet, I bet we can get this right. What's the greatest thing in the world? Love. Y'all always think I'm going to trick you. What's the greatest thing in the world? It's love. It's love, and God is love. But you don't have love unless you have freedom. And so the enemy, I believe, I want to talk to you for a moment about what the Bible teaches about the nature and character of God. The nature and character of God is this, that God is an influencer, not a forcer or a controller. He can do anything. He can, and at times he does. Again, I refer you to C.S. Lewis and his book on prayer for a more in-depth look on this. But God's nature, more times than not, is not to force or control, but to woo and to win and to draw, to to influence. 
One of the most famous stories ever told was the prodigal son. You know it. We preached it here before. Luke chapter 15, the son takes his father's inheritance early, sort of spits in his face, takes his father's inheritance and goes and lives a reckless lifestyle. He's in a pigsty. Uh, wine, women, and song did not satisfy. He's broke. That usually gets your attention, right? When do, you, when, when, do, when do you look up most is when you're broke. And this young man is broken at the end of himself. And Scripture gives us this beautiful phrase. You've heard me teach this. When he came to his senses. He doesn't say when the father went out and forced him back home. Like, that would, like, really be bad in the story, wouldn't it? Like, that wouldn't be one of the most famous and beautiful stories ever told because the father would go and force his will. And you know that when a son takes his inheritance and goes, like, I've got one who's still on my payroll in college, right? But when, when, when a young man does that, there's freedom there. When my little ones were little, little, I, want, I needed, we needed to tell them, do your homework, brush your teeth, say your, say your prayers, have fun. Like, do these things, right? Because I'm barking them out to you. Do these things. But I want them to grow up and learn when they should say their prayers and why and when they should brush their teeth, I think three times a day, and when they should do their homework and these sort of things. I want them to know and be able to reason and make the choice on their own. And that's love. And love needs freedom. And God doesn't impose His will, and so it gets tough here, and tough for some of you. I know some of you, I'm your pastor. and You let me in. But for some of you, your unanswered prayer this morning is that wayward child. And it's difficult. And God is not a God to answer that prayer according to your prayer. It's not a mandate because that person that is wayward has made some choices. Now pray for them. I will join you in praying for them. I do. I have. I will. But there's freedom. And it's going to come down to that son or daughter, that loved one of yours, coming to their senses. The enemy, it's more of his nature to force and to control, to manipulate and to intimidate but it's not God's. And so we need a real good understanding of free will. Now, in the Christian camp, there are a different theological grids. Some uh, people, um, Reformed theologians and our Presbyterian friends, really enforce a God's sovereignty. You're not in charge of a lot of things that you think. It's not your choice with a lot of things. And then over here, the other side, there are folks who really emphasize choice and free will. And Scripture teaches both. But we live, what I want you to see is heaven is the place, according to Jesus, it's the place where His will is always done, but earth is the place where His will is sometimes done. The next area I want to bring you to when it comes to will is my best versus God's best. A friend of ours has a dog, and the dog, when it was a puppy, um, would would snuggle with him. He, he cooks a lot. He's a chef by living and cooks at home. And his cute puppy dog would sit under the oven in a dangerous place. And so our friend, the master of the dog, would have to get his puppy, uh, have to train him to get away from this place. And if you ask the puppy when it was a puppy, he would think his master's being cruel. His master's not giving him what he wants. But you and I know we're humans and we realize that the master of this dog was knew best. This dog thought he knew best, but the master knows best. And I'm not trying to call us dogs, but I'm just telling you, God really does. He really does. He knows what you need more than you do. 
and you go back and get inside that puppy when it was a puppy and it was warm and it was close to its master, there's no way that puppy could reason that's, that's not where it should be. And that can be us. Impure motives versus pure motives. James, half-brother of Jesus, James chapter 4, teaches us. He says this, and we need to hear it today. You do not have because, you know, you know this first, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Ask. But you ask and do not receive because you ask it to consume it upon your own lust. Your motives are not pure. Now, I'm kind of an older guy, so I want to give you, I've, I've lived, and I want to give you the number one single most worst um, motivated prayer, most common worst motivated prayer. It's this, Lord, change him, change her. Now, I do believe that we should pray for God to shape the lives of people that we love, but oftentimes it's an out. Oftentimes what we're saying is, Lord, I don't want to deal with my stuff and my immaturity, so I want to pray that you reshape him or her to be able to be suited, to be, you know, to deal with my dysfunction and feed my own ego. And that's a motivated, an impure, impurely motivated prayer. And our motives, they matter. The third word that I put in front of you besides world and will is war. There is an opposition this summer, Nick and Daniel and I preached a sermon series called The Fight of Your Life. Fight for your spouse, fight for your kids, fight for your friends, fight for your faith. And we had you look at this passage that many of you know, Ephesians chapter 6, says put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's, what, schemes. It's not a full frontal, it's not a direct attack, you don't see it coming, there's trickeration. Football season's upon us, right? It's like a naked bootleg. It's like a misdirection. You don't see it coming. You get fooled because it's the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Man, it's dark. And against the spiritual forces of what? Of evil in the heavenly realms. I believe in Satan. I believe in an enemy that Peter would say like a roaring lion. He seeks whom he may devour. He's looking for the isolated one. He's looking for the one who's not walking in community with other followers. That's who he's looking for and he's real. There are unseen forces seeking to wreak havoc and they have a will. And when you pray, there is opposition. And I'm not a demon behind every bush person. I've read many of the books that some of you send to me or tell me to read. And honestly, I'm not, I don't follow the fads. Like, I'll, you know, I'm just, I'm not into it. And I'm just telling you, there, there's a lot of dumb stuff being written in the name of spiritual warfare. And they're selling books, right? And some of them making movies. And it's just, a, there's a lot of bad theology. Not all of it, but a lot of it. But here's, here's Jesus. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, what did he do? He stood. He stood and he prayed and he quoted the Bible and he said no. And then when he's tempted again, he stood and he prayed and he quoted the Bible and he said no. And then when he was tempted again that third time, he stood, he prayed, he quoted the Bible and he said no. And that is how we pray and how we live in the midst of this spiritual warfare. We stand. We stand. 
You can read the books if you want to, but I encourage you to read the Bible and know the truth. Know what it says about you, about him, about the world in which we live, about suffering. And let it move you away from misunderstandings and terrible expectations that some of us have that don't just cripple our prayer life, it ends up crippling our faith. What's next? A few words. Another word is faith. I want to say this this morning, Matthew 21, 22, I want to say it because Jesus said it and it's conditional. His love is not conditional. But this promise is, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Do you have faith? For some of you, your prayers aren't being answered because you don't have faith. One writer I admire put it like this. He says that for some of us, our prayer is just like worrying out loud. It's not a prayer of faith. We're just worrying out loud. We're just throwing something up there. Oh, I've been praying. I've been asking God. I've been asking, you know, just, we're just, you're just worrying out loud. And there's no faith to that. Single biggest motivator to pray is answer prayer. I've seen it. I've seen it. The single most demotivating factor to prayer is unanswered prayer. I know it. I feel it. I'm in it. But God calls us to have faith. Another big word when it comes to the war that we're in is perseverance. In Luke 18, 1, it says this, Then Jesus told His disciples a parable. He's going to tell them a great story to show them that they should always pray and not give up. For some of us, some of you, the unanswered prayer is a prayer that's not answered yet. Not answered yet. Why do we have to keep knocking? Why do we have to wrestle with God? Why do we have to keep asking Him, Jesus, is He hard of hearing? Is He busy with North Korea? Why? If God gives us, this is one step, if God gives us, if God gives you everything you ask for when you ask for it, then the relationship with God has devolved into a debit ATM relationship, not a child father. And sometimes I've learned it as a father. Sometimes what you're, pe- you're, what you're pestering your father for, it's not the gift that you're wanting. Ultimately, it's the relationship. And he is always better than the gift. But have faith and keep on knocking. Another important word as we begin to close is the word sin. For some of us today, your prayer is unanswered because of sin in your life. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Is not this the kind of... Oh, I'm sorry, this is Isaiah 50. I don't think we have Isaiah 59 up there. Um, Psalm 68, we have that. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. It's important. It's important to make things right. For some of you, it's greed. It's holding on. For some of you, it's anger. Can I tell you today, deal with that anger. Deal with it. We said last week before Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, before He taught us how to pray, He taught us how not to pray. And He said, don't be a hypocrite. Don't heap up empty phrases. And don't harbor anything against another person. 
the sin in your life can really be blocking your prayers and even the answer to it. Beyond that of sin, there is justice. Justice. God's way in this world. Lord, your kingdom, what's up there, bring it down here and use me to do that. Use me to bring your kingdom here. Now for that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting, put the word prayer with that, I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wonder with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood and now the promise? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will come quickly. For some of you, there's an unanswered prayer because you're praying something and you're not willing to be a part of the kingdom prayer, the bigger prayer. And I want to tell you, let us not be a people who come to God with big prayer requests and clenched fists. Let Proverbs 21, 13 speak over us now. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Do we value the justice of His kingdom? Or are you just worrying out loud and throwing a bunch of prayers up to God? There are many, many reasons. Maybe one or ten of these spoke to you today of your own life. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh man, I wanted to be wooed and won to pray bold prayers And now there's like 10 reasons that my prayers aren't going to reach God. But I want to tell you to ask and let God do something in you. Because if we we have a book as our guide that has as many, in fact, more unanswered prayers than answered prayers, look, for anybody who thinks intellectually, anybody who thinks that the existence of unanswered prayers somehow proves the lack of veracity for prayer, you're mistaken. You're mistaken if the Bible is our God. I mean, that's just just sound intellectually to say that. And maybe it's needed to be said. Jesus, I'll close with Jesus. Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther. He fell with his face to the ground. And prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not I, not as I will, but as you will. The most desperate prayer ever prayed. From the most discerning spirit who ever lived. From the purest heart that ever beat. Against the greatest travesty of justice ever perpetuated. And heaven goes silent. The cup did not pass from him. The prayer was unanswered. And so for my faith, my sanity, and my joy in this life, for reasons that I can't explain, some unanswered prayer in my life or your life, I took hold of a beautiful young mother after the 930 service and prayed for her. And the fear that she could have of another loss. 
So don't think today as somebody standing up here giving you all the airtight answers. But ultimately I'm pointing you to a person. And as we see the heart of the gospel is an unanswered prayer that ultimately points us to a father. Would you stand?